Dark Arenas shows us that the world can be a dark place. And until recently, I thought I knew the depths of that darkness, especially in the place I call home. But it turns out I was wrong. I've spent over a year investigating the death of 27-year-old Douglas Wagg Jr., hoping to learn exactly how he died and why his body was found across a strip of railroad tracks so far from his home. But what I ended up finding was so much more. In this season of my show, Counterclock, I uncover a string of crimes and mysterious deaths that unveil darkness and corruption right in my home state. Listen to Counterclock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. The content of Dark Arenas includes topics and subject matter that may not be suitable for all audiences. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of AudioChuck or its employees. Information discussed by the host and interviewees includes content related to crimes against children, abuse, acts of terrorism, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. In a war zone, your chances of survival are measured by the second. Soldiers train for this day in and day out, but you're not a soldier. A week ago, you were rifling through papers in a stuffy government office building, sipping on stale coffee from a yellowed styrofoam cup. You were waging war against white-collar criminals, not hostile enemies in a sand-whipping desert. Suddenly, you miss your yellowed styrofoam cup. You think to yourself, what the hell am I doing here in the Middle East? But you know the answer. Terrorist attacks on September 11th flattened the middle of Manhattan. And along with it, Americans' sense of safety. Men and women in uniform scramble around you as dust from the Iraqi desert kicks up. The constant whir of helicopter blades drowns out any of your attempts to talk with these unfamiliar military faces. Your current orders from the FBI are clear. Do not engage in gunfire, do not get captured, and do not give up. Your job is to figure out if and when terrorists will strike again in the United States. You've gone from domestic to deployed overnight, and there is no going back. In today's episode of Dark Arenas, we're learning about some of the worst crimes that are born in or find their way into the homeland as experienced by a career FBI agent. Retired FBI agent Rich Kolko beams with pride as he sits across from me at his kitchen table. His son is about to graduate from the United States Coast Guard Academy. And in true dad fashion, with his iPhone held further away from his face than looks comfortable, Rich scrolls through his pictures and shows me all of his grown kids. He couldn't be prouder. I can tell that his son's graduation ceremony, albeit virtual because of COVID-19, is a big deal to everyone in the family, but especially Rich. Rich dedicated 21 years of his life to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, living across the U.S. tracking crimes that threatened Americans from the inside out. That job often kept him away from his wife and kids for long periods of time. 
He missed a lot of life moments, but he won't miss this one. By the time we settled in for our interview, Rich had tucked away his phone and was focused. He loves to discuss the Bureau. Tell me five things that you can name anywhere in the world, five brands that everybody knows. Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Disney. Make a little joke, you used to say Microsoft, but now it's Apple. And I'd say the FBI. No matter where you go, there's about 220 countries in the world. You say those five things, everybody's heard of them. So when I asked him what the most wild thing was he ever had to do on assignment, he told me the story I opened this episode with, his deployment overseas at the start of the Iraq War in 2003. I was on the first rotation of FBI agents sent into Iraq for the war. Got there six weeks before the war started in 2003. And uh, 18 hours after the shooting started, we were on helicopters up into Iraq as FBI agents. So you think people don't know that FBI agents are sent into war zones? War zones, yeah. To collect intelligence? Uh, to collect, we were looking for threats in the homeland. So while the military would interview the captured prisoners for threats against the military in the region, you know, is Iraq going to attack U.S. forces somewhere? Our job was to try and find information. Are they going to attack people back in the United States. So we were dressed as soldiers, and uh, we were moving forward with the Army and uh, conducting interviews and collecting evidence, you know, 18 hours after the shooting started. He couldn't discuss with me the details of what exactly he did during the war, but just the thought that someone could go from working a desk job for the FBI in the wake of 9-11. My first job was going through manifests, trying to figure out who had been on airplanes on that day, on 9-11, because we didn't know if were there more attacks that didn't succeed. To then trudging through Middle Eastern deserts, searching for anti-American terrorist cells, the stark transition of workflow was incomprehensible to me. But I guess that's war. You never know what's going to come next. That's the reality Rich agreed to when he applied to the FBI Academy at Quantico in 1995. When you sign up for the FBI, unlike most other federal agencies, you sign what's called a mobility agreement. That means you agree to be transferred to whatever field office they want to send you to. I wanted to know what would bring somebody to want to do that with their life. What made Rich want to never have a steady government career trajectory? Turns out, a terrorist attack is what inspired him. He remembers vividly the aftermath of one of the most catastrophic terrorist attacks in American history the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. At the center of it all, of course, is the bombed-out shell of the federal office building, and in its shadow, the exhausted, who for a day and a half now have sifted through its debris and counted its dead. I'd served in the military and uh, got out of the Navy and uh, was in between jobs and ended up through a friend working on the assignment desk at CNN in Atlanta, Georgia. And the bombing happened at Oklahoma City. And uh, there's a similarity between journalists and investigators. Different sets of rules, but some of the same tools and some of the same methodologies. And the methodology of the assignment editors was to develop sources and get information on what was going on. So I ended up with a phone number of an FBI agent who was out there working in Oklahoma City. And I was calling him once or twice a day. I can tell you now, because it doesn't matter, I did not get a piece of information from this guy. 
But we just developed this kind of funny uh, phone relationship every day, chit-chatting. And uh, he finally said one day, a couple weeks into this, he goes, Rich, you're a pain in the butt. Why don't you just come over to our side instead? I said, sounds good to me. And he called back to his office. They sent me an application packet. I filled it out, and later I was at the FBI Academy. After graduating from the FBI, Rich stayed in Atlanta and worked in a federal office building just a few blocks away from his old office at CNN. My first office of assignment was Atlanta, Georgia, and I was assigned to the White Collar Crime Squad doing mortgage fraud. When you got that assignment, what was really the meat of that work? Well, when I got white collar crime, mortgage fraud, I was like, oh, this doesn't sound that good. It really didn't. And there's a lot of investigations like that uh, in the FBI. But once you started to dig into the work, and at that time, mortgage fraud was one of the very high priorities for the FBI. Uh, It was rampant in the 90s with the way the uh, real estate market was going and the way people were taking advantage of it. And it it ran the gamut from all kinds of different people. One of of the first arrests that was on was a, a state senator in Georgia who was involved in mortgage fraud. So it it was very long, intricate work, going through a lot of records, a lot of files, but it had all the elements of any investigation. You know, surveillance, sometimes wiretaps, talking to people, developing sources, tracking the money, forensic evidence. Everything you could think of is in in the investigation. It doesn't matter whether it's a mortgage fraud, healthcare, drugs, all those same tools are there and FBI agents learn how to use them. So he wasn't necessarily thwarting terrorist attacks right out of the gate. But over time, Rich says he learned that the inner workings and schemes of white-collar criminals committing, say, mortgage fraud were actually terrorizing and wreaking havoc on American citizens. They just didn't realize it. Talk about a lot of money cumulatively because they would do this over and over and over again. So many different properties, there was so much growth, get the false appraisals, get the loans foreclosures or or resell the house or whatever, and uh, it became millions of dollars in these cases. Criminals committing mass mortgage fraud in the 90s and early 2000s eroded that part of the U.S. economy and the housing market. Rich says major cities and small towns were littered with real estate crooks in all levels of the home buying process. As agents, you'd find a pattern of in that part of town that there's been several of these foreclosures or several of these appraisals and you find the appraisers that are doing these false appraisals and that's a crime. Then the people getting the loans and you know, as soon as you apply for a loan with a false appraisal, you know, you've committed several federal crimes. So you would, um, like anything, you would start low, try and get somebody, jam them up, and then work your way up the system so you can find the kingpin behind the case. Mortgage fraud or any extensive financial fraud case often takes a long time for an FBI agent to put together. But in the end, Rich says those investigations are always worth the long hours. It's still very exciting, especially when you have targets and you you try and plan out what you want to do. Well, I I know we've got an appraiser. We want to get who is their boss, what bank are they working with. So it's it's building blocks along the way. And each one is, uh, is progress and each one is an accomplishment and you know you're farther down the road. Learning how to pay attention to minute details, track convoluted data, and follow complicated money trails were all skills Rich would have to put into action, all at once, just a year after becoming an FBI agent. He would be on the front lines helping to investigate another American tragedy. The bombing of the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. Do you want to set your child up for success? 
iXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. iXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. Now, my little guy is still young, but I can already tell that integrating fun ways to learn is going to be a game changer for him. Powered by advanced algorithms, iXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. iXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. There's one site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids can even access iXL on the go through the app or your phone or tablet. No more trying to figure out how to explain math equations or grammar rules yourself. iXL has built-in explanation videos. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get iXL now. And Dark Arena's listeners can get an exclusive 20% off iXL membership when they sign up today at iXL.com arenas. Visit iXL.com arenas to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. When it comes to learning a new language, which is something that's a passion of mine, because, hey, I'm in the field of communication. I can't help but love language. But what I really want most is a software or a program that I can trust. I want to make sure that what I'm paying for, I'm actually going to be able to use in the real world. And that's why I love Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone has been trusted for 30 years with millions of users, and there are 25 languages offered. 25. I'm currently brushing up on my French because I learned it pretty well a couple of years ago, but I've gotten away from it. And one of my favorite things about the app is that true accent feature where you get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. And when it comes to a language like French, I obviously want to make sure I'm doing the accent right. So whether you're traveling abroad or trying to break down a communication barrier with a new friend, Rosetta Stone is something you should look into because you don't want to put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Arena's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com arenas. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash arenas. The bombing at Centennial Olympic Park this morning was an evil act of terror. It was aimed at the innocent people who were participating in the Olympic Games and in the spirit of the Olympics. On July 27, 1996, in the early morning hours, a bomb in a backpack detonated in the public plaza at the heart of the Summer Olympic Games in Atlanta, Georgia. One woman was killed and hundreds of others were injured from the nails and shrapnel that had been stuffed into the homemade bomb. We will spare no effort to find out who was responsible for this murderous act. We will track them down. We will bring them to justice. The people President Bill Clinton sent to bring justice were hundreds of FBI agents supported by local law enforcement. Already based in the FBI's Atlanta Bureau, Rich and his colleagues got right to work. As soon as the bomb went off, we all got the calls and uh, report back to work. They created a, the evidence response team and all the evidence collectors, you know, went right to the site. I, I'd been back and forth, then I went back and forth to the site to help there administratively. I wasn't part of the evidence team. A lot of us were going to 
different places to collect evidence, pick it up. Different people had picked up evidence. Tourists had picked up some of the nails and stuff, and so they started to track all that down. And then they formed this big command post at the FBI office. And there were, had to be a couple hundred people in there every day for case updates and assignments. And this is, at the time, the FBI and many others thought Richard Jewell might be involved with it. So the focus of the case, or big focus of the case, was Richard Jewell at that time. They were still investigating everything else, but um, we were all involved in that in some way. Richard Jewell was a security guard at Centennial Park in Atlanta, who alerted law enforcement prior to the explosion that there was a suspicious unattended knapsack near a bench. For a long time, federal authorities strongly suspected Jewell of actually committing the crime. A phone call had come in from the president of a college that Richard Jewell had been a police officer at. And he was the one who kind of started, that call kind of started the looking at Richard Jewell a little more seriously because he'd had some problems with Richard Jewell as a police officer, resulting in him either being fired or resigning, I can't remember. I was assigned up in that area to learn what we could about Richard Jewell. But years later, Jewell was cleared as a suspect. The real bomber was an anti-government domestic terrorist named Eric Rudolph. Rudolph was eventually caught and convicted of the Olympics bombing and several others like it. The FBI pursued him for five years, but Rudolph always evaded them, surviving in the rural mountainous terrain in North Carolina that he knew well. The investigative work to contain the Atlanta Olympics bombing scene and track Rudolph fell into the hands of FBI agents like Rich. My job was mostly uh, had to do with response to suspicious packages and bombs. So they had this really big board in this uh, command post that we were working in. And as the new guy, I got the overnight shift. And in the Atlanta area, there are about 50 different police departments. When you count every little town, because the Olympic Circle was very big. So there were 50 different police departments or so that had to talk to each other, and feds, and military, and everybody. So a lot of communication was involved. You gotta remember there were 10,000 accredited media at the Olympics. And the Olympic Games had stopped for a couple days. So it wasn't like regular town where you got two or three reporters calling. You've got 10,000 reporters, you know, trying to follow this case, trying to follow law enforcement. So it was just an insane several days. We operated 24-7, which sounds routine, but we operated 24-7 like it was 9 to 5. And I was on the overnight shift. And if we needed to talk to somebody at three in the morning, we just knocked on the door at three in the morning like it was three in the afternoon. There was no difference because that was the, the speed that we needed to work and the pressure on this case was to keep going forward. Rich says all of the days and nights the FBI agents spent together trying to collect evidence in interviews and pursue Rudolph brought them all together. They formed deep bonds. And right as he said that, our interview was interrupted almost on cue. I'm good. I'm in the middle of an interview though, buddy. Can I call you back? Okay. <laughs> um, that was actually the commander of the uh, Atlanta bombing. What? On the phone? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Very interesting. <laughs> so, yeah, close friendships forged during high-profile federal investigations definitely run deep. And getting to know Rich, I can see why. He's intelligent, for sure, and talkative about the past and the present. And it's that, his gift of gab, that draws me in most. And turns out, that's no coincidence. Gab is an FBI agent's best skill. The best thing that an FBI agent can do is to get information from a person. And they are looking for the kind of person that can reach out and engage another person. Can you talk to people? 
because that is a critical, critical skill as an FBI agent. Can you walk up and talk to people that you don't know and at the end of the day elicit information from them? And there's no better time to use the gift of gab than while investigating a crime that's the Bureau's bread and butter. Bank robberies. According to the FBI's website on bank crime statistics, in 1934, it became a federal crime to rob any national bank or state member bank of the Federal Reserve. This includes a lot of financial vendors. Commercial banks, savings and loans associations, credit unions, and armored carrier companies. In 2018 alone, 2,975 of these institutions were robbed in the United States. The most popular day of the week to strike? Fridays from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. Most of these robberies occurred in branch offices in commercial districts of major metropolitan cities. Suspects stole cash from tellers at the counter, but a few targeted the big take, a vault. In almost every case in 2018, robbers were seen on surveillance cameras in some form or fashion, which led to nearly three quarters of them being captured but there were many who got away with their crimes. And this is just data from 2018. FBI stats from 2019 and 2020 aren't available yet. According to Rich, there's no doubt about it. Bank robberies are one of the most common crimes the FBI investigates. The FBI has historically covered bank robberies. It fits a variety of federal crimes. Certainly one of the you know, interesting and exciting things to do. One of the best places to get training as a new FBI agent because there's people you got to talk to right away. There's bank tellers and customers that are in the bank, so you've got so you develop that rapport. How do I start talking to people? How do I get information? There's evidence to be collected. They leave fingerprints. Are, are there cameras, there photographs? Did anybody see the car? Is there a, a camera outside in an ATM or a convenience store that caught the car leaving, the car coming? It's a very succinct and small case in many ways that's just great training for people. According to Tristan Smith's reporting for CNN, in 2007, Atlanta, Georgia became the heist capital of the nation, surpassing Los Angeles and Philadelphia for most bank robberies. Rich remembers the FBI worked case after case throughout the city in the mid-2000s. There was a bank robbery gang in Atlanta. Oh, God, I wish I could remember the name. Well, they robbed banks for five years. They got away with it for five years. What was their M.O.? Well, they ended up robbing banks the same day or two of the week. And they had the big map on the board, on the wall, which banks this group had robbed. You know, what time of day, what street, what bank, and you know, almost predict where should we set up surveillance. And we would set up surveillance in advance, thinking, hey, they did this bank, this bank, this bank, maybe the next one's gonna be over here. So we would set out a surveillance team, you know, hoping, I guess, that the bank was gonna be robbed, but that the FBI would be right there on scene. And they finally caught those guys. Rich says the main reason people rob banks is desperation. They don't think it through. They just pass notes threatening violence. The robber gets a few thousand dollars in cash from the tellers and then usually goes on their way. Sometimes they strike again states or cities away, and sometimes they don't. Usually if they're caught, they confess. But every now and then, more organized criminal cells crop up and pull off successful heists. 
In those cases, the criminals get away with hundreds of thousands into the millions of dollars. Most of those schemes target currency in transit, like armored trucks, and some of them are crews of robbers that will clean out a vault and launder the money afterwards. These more sophisticated criminals are the ones that can haunt an FBI agent. Rich never personally had a case of a bank robber who got away, but many of his colleagues did, and to this day, still do. This particular crime, like Rich said, usually leaves investigators with a wealth of clues, images, and witnesses, but the robberies that are absent of those things make for longer, more involved investigations, which can span years, even decades. And that can be the darkest part of the job, the unknown, the unresolved cons, the inability to capture a federal fugitive who's robbed a bank or is peddling stolen artwork or who's forging financial documents. That gnawing reality there is still a bad guy or woman still out there is something Rich says stays with many FBI agents who've worked white-collar crimes or national terrorist attacks. Many agents can become workaholics. They always hold on to something. Rich is just glad that in his experience, he found a healthy balance a long time ago. How difficult is being an FBI agent and trying to maintain some normalcy in life? Is there a point where that just can't happen or are there compromises made to make it happen? Absolutely, there's compromises made. I spent a lot of time and several years away from my family because my children were doing very well in the schools they were in and I didn't want to disrupt their life. So I took some assignments in Washington. I was alone for a while in New York. I went to for a couple of years by myself to the overseas without my family and, and certainly some sacrifices. But I chose to make them because I felt like the mission was important. And, you know, you look back and, and wonder, you know, is it the right decision, not the right decision? My kids turned out okay. My job, my career turned out okay. So I'm happy with the way it went. So happy, in fact, that he never lets a person he feels could be a good FBI candidate slip past him. As we wrapped up our interview and I had him electronically sign a release for our show, he returned it with an application. It was for me to send to Quantico. Maybe I'll take him up on it. Or maybe for now, I'll just keep making podcasts. This episode of Dark Arenas was written and produced by Delia D'Ambra, with writing assistance from executive producer Ashley Flowers. You can find pictures and all of the source material for this episode on our website, darkarenas.com. Dark Arenas is an Audio Chuck original show. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? <laughs>